Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So turn your Bible to Romans chapter 10, and uh, in order to, to make sense of the last half of the chapter, starting in verse 14, when we read it, we actually need to include uh, the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 13, because everything that follows is kind of unpacking a certain idea that you find in verse 13. So hear the word of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and let us see, open our ears and let us hear what you are saying to us with these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you look in your order of worship, not only do you have the text for the sermon, but you also have the sermon title, which according to your order of worship is Faith Comes from Hearing. But I have to be honest, that's not the whole title of the sermon. It's actually longer than that. So I'll give you the entire title of the sermon that you're about to hear. Faith comes from hearing, except when it doesn't. Faith comes from hearing, except when it doesn't, which I admit is a lot less inspiring than the short version, but it is more faithful to the point that Paul is making in the last half of Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing, he says, and as he's saying it, he's also struggling because he's seeing that it does, and yet not always. He's puzzled and, and, and honestly tormented by the rejection of Christ on the part of the people around him. And in the chapters that we've been studying, he's trying to understand better what it all means, how all the pieces fit together. On the one hand, in this passage, he gives us a beautiful description of the way it works the way that people come to faith. 
Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he tells us everything that happens to get you to the point of making that call. The way it works, it's wonderful. It's clear. But on the other hand, he reminds us that the very same process that brings some people to Christ, that leads to that call in others, does not have the same effect. In other cases, people reject him. So this is the way it works, except when it doesn't. And the question you have to ask is, why isn't it working? So first, let's look at the way it works. At the beginning of our passage, Paul lays out a process, but he does it by asking questions, a series of questions. We're used to this by now, the way Paul teaches. He likes to ask rhetorical questions and then elaborate on them, but that's not exactly what he does here. Here, he just fires question after question after question because the answers to the questions are kind of obvious, right? There's a necessity that drives these conclusions. You can't call on someone you haven't believed in. You can't believe in someone you've never heard of. You can't hear of someone unless he's been preached and and no one's going to preach unless they're sent. It kind of follows quickly and you get a kind of pattern or process by which the gospel is proclaimed. In verse 13, he quotes the prophet Joel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he unpacks everything that goes into that call being made. Everything that goes into that public profession of our faith, calling upon the name of the Lord. There's a, we'll, we'll take them in reverse order from, from the way he does. We'll start with sending. At the beginning of that process, there's a sending. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 sends out disciples to go out and not only preach the gospel, but to make disciples, right? To to make worshipers. So there's a sending that takes place. Paul has been sent out in order to proclaim the word that he proclaims. That sending is a public process. It's something the church has done. It is commissioned. It has entrusted the message to people who've been openly sent in order to proclaim it. Those who are sent preach. They proclaim, they declare. When we use the word preach in English, we have a really narrow definition of what we mean. You know, uh, uh, preaching is, is a guy getting up in front of people and talking from the Bible. But the word, it just means to declare, to express, to, to share, to proclaim, all of that stuff. In that sense, preaching is, is a very broad kind of activity. It's something you may find yourself doing unwittingly uh, at, at the drop of a hat anytime you talk about the good news of the gospel. But notice what is being preached. It's the word of Christ. The message that's being proclaimed specifically, Paul refers to it as the word of Christ. That message proclaimed to sinners is what must be heard. It must be heard. You must attend to it, understand it, take it into yourself, receive it. And that's how belief is formed. That hearing, that receiving kindles belief, putting trust in Christ And that belief, once kindled, leads to something. It leads to the calling that started this process. 
calling on the name of the Lord, professing faith publicly, being received into the body of Christ, the church. So there is a a public beginning in the sending. The church sends people out, and there is a public receiving at the end. We call upon the Lord in the context of his church and are received into his church, which is why the church is the people of God and not the persons of God, the individuals of God. There's a few things you can observe just in what we've covered so far. First, we've got another chain to deal with. If you remember back in Romans 8, we were given a chain. We called it the golden chain that links election and predestination before the foundation of the world to glorification after Christ returns, a chain that gives us security wherever we find ourselves on that that point, that chain, we can look backwards and we can look forward and we can feel confidence. This is a chain, but it's a different kind of chain. And if the golden chain gives us election to glory, this is more of an experiential chain. This is a chain that uh, is uh, not progressive and working forward, but kind of uh, the other way around. It works backwards from the results to discover the cause. It goes from the effects to the causes. It comes from the public profession of faith and traces it back through the process, the means that the Spirit uses to bring us to faith. I think that's significant because if you trace that chain back, you trace it all the way back, you get not just to the sender, the church, but also to the one who is the head of the church to Christ. That behind the the call upon his name, the profession of faith in him, ultimately, if you trace it back, it finds its source and its origin in Christ himself, which gives us confidence if we believe. But also if we reject him, if we reject the message, what we're rejecting is Christ himself. If we turn our backs on his gospel, we are turning our backs on him. And so this is a chain not only of assurance, this is a chain of, you might think, responsibility as well. Like because of these words, no one can claim ignorance. Like no one has a good excuse. If you've rejected him, you've rejected him and are responsible for that rejection. Another thing you see here, and often this is a point that's made in talking about Romans ten fourteen, is the preeminence of preaching. That when Paul talks about the spread of the gospel, when he talks about the way that faith comes about, at the center of that process is this act of proclamation. St. Francis is supposed to have said, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary which I love, and, and I wish I could preach the gospel without using words, but, but I can't. Use words. They're necessary. The proclamation of the word is essential. The word of Christ should be talked about. It should be proclaimed. It should be preached. This is the way that the gospel is spread. As I said, preaching might be more than we imagine, but it's certainly not less. We have to be willing to speak the word. 
which is a good reminder, I think, for us. In, in the age that we live in, we often call it a post-Christian age. Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, maybe not. It's definitely a post-sermon age, right? You can tell this because we, as a church, are constantly scrambling to rebrand sermons as something more interesting that you would be more likely to want to sit through. Don't get me wrong. I, I think sermons ought to be interesting and engaging. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. I just want to say maybe less shame over the way that the message is conveyed because these are the means that God has ordained. But the third thing, and the thing that I really think is significant because it's easy to miss, is is the meaning of these words that Paul quotes calling on the name of the Lord. When we say anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, what exactly are we talking about? Well, in verse 9, if you go back, Paul uses a synonym. He expresses it in other words. He, he calls it confessing with your mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's talking about a, a, like a verbal confession of faith, a profession of our faith. A public thing, not a private thing. A verbal thing, not a inside your head kind of thing. That's what calling on the name of the Lord is. This, I think, is a good reminder to us as well, because we certainly live in times when we tend to think of our religious commitments as private and personal, not public, not corporate. And I believe what I believe, and here it's okay, because you guys are kind of afflicted with the same sorts of beliefs. We can talk about it here, but we mustn't talk about it out there, because that would be like forcing our beliefs in other people, and it's private. It's, it's private. It's not meant to be used in that way. But again, that way of thinking is very alien to the way the Apostle Paul speaks about the gospel. His expectation is not only that we hear the word proclaimed and that belief is kindled within us, but that that belief leads to calling upon the name of the Lord publicly, corporately, that, that that faith that begins inside of us leads us, among other things, to want to unite ourselves to the body of Christ. To be together in our confession of faith in Christ. Publicly professing your faith, being united to the body of Christ, is actually central to the gospel as it is proclaimed in Scripture. And when I find myself thinking that other way, that, that way that, that we do sometimes, you know, keep it to myself, don't make a big deal out of it. This isn't the kind of stuff to talk about in mixed company. We're not everybody's a Christian. We just keep quiet about it. I remember Jesus's words in Matthew 10. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And I don't want to be one of those people. And you don't want to be one of those people either. We don't want to just believe in our hearts and end it there. We want to call on the name of the Lord. We want to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the way it works. Paul says, this is the process. People are sent. The gospel is preached. People hear and believe. And then they call upon the name of the Lord And it seems so neat and so simple. 
And it seems like the answer to a Christian world, a completely saved world, is just keep sending, keep preaching, they'll keep hearing and keep believing, and then eventually everybody will believe. But even as he lays out the way it works, already, already it becomes complicated. Paul starts saying things that suggest there's more to this. This is the way it works. This is the way it's supposed to work. The problem is it doesn't always work. Sometimes that process has a different result. You see this in the quotations that Paul uses. Again, I hope you're struck as much as I am by how much of the book of Romans relies upon the Old Testament. How much this book is a sermon preached with the Old Testament as its text. Here, Paul gives us six quotations. And in your order of worship, uh, we don't usually do this, but they're all called out at the bottom. They're footnoted there so you can see where those passages come from. There's a significance, I think, not only to who he's quoting, but also the relationship between those passages. That, that line about the beautiful feet of those who proclaim the gospel, those, those gospel messengers, that comes from Isaiah 52, verse 7. Very affirming. But then immediately, Paul complicates things. Immediately after quoting those, those, those great words, he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah again, and it sounds this pessimistic note. That's Isaiah 53, verse 1, that he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And rhetorical question, but the answer is nobody. It's, it's an expression of frustration that you're getting there. No one is believing what's going on. So Paul quotes from Isaiah four times in the passage that we're looking at. And then he quotes from the Psalms once, and he quotes from Deuteronomy once. The Isaiah quotes are interesting, though, because he doesn't just quote from Isaiah, but each quote, it's like a one-two punch. There's four quotes, but it's like two salvos. He gives you like a positive and a negative two times. You saw the first one, that was Isaiah 52, verse 7, followed by Isaiah 53, 1. And if you get your Bible and you look those verses up, what's striking is how close together they are. Like the positive comes first and then the negative right after it. And he does it again with the second group of quotations at the end of our passage. And here it's, it's really pointed. It's really pointed because the first quote comes from Isaiah 65 verse 1. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, the salvation of the Gentiles. But then it's followed up by this quote from Isaiah, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And if you go look those passages up in the Bible and try to see like, like where they've fallen, so you can tell from the references there, they're side by side. It's Isaiah 65 verse 1, immediately followed by Isaiah 65 verse 2. The very next verse, Paul's not picking and choosing. This is in Isaiah, this dynamic. On the one hand, the positive, the, the declaration, and on the other, the why isn't it working? Why isn't this happening the way that I thought that it would? The Messiah has come, good news. But instead of receiving him, his people have rejected him. This is the way it works, but it's not working. 
They're signs of trouble. Paul says they have not obeyed in verse 16. He says in verse 18 that it's not because they haven't heard. The reason they haven't obeyed isn't because they haven't heard, because they have heard. He quotes from Psalm 19 to emphasize that point. The message has been heard. In verse 19, he asks, well, is, is the problem that they just don't understand? Like they heard, but they didn't really hear. They didn't really get it. And then the quotation from Deuteronomy afterwards shows, no, there's something more going on. Right? There's something deeper, a deeper problem. Ignorance is not the reason. Unwillingness is. Rebellion is. And then you ask, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? It's a good question. The answer, I think, is because sometimes God is doing more than we can perceive. It's not that the plan has failed that the plan runs deeper than we realize. And as the quotations from the Old Testament show, even the failure was prophesied. Even the failure is another part of the work that God is doing, which is not an easy thing to hear sometimes. It's not easy to hear because this is a dilemma I think we find ourselves in often, not only over this question, but many questions, where we go to scripture and, and, and we find teaching that suggests this is the way it works. And then we're confronted by things in life, and it's not working that way. People say, if you want to be prosperous and blessed, just do your best to please God, pray a lot, and he will bless you, that sort of thing. But what if that's not what happens? You throw your hands up and say, well, it's supposed to work this way. Why doesn't it work? I think we're constantly asking ourselves that question. And the answer is because God is doing something more than we realize, that God has a deeper plan, a deeper intention. It's no accident that it's Isaiah that Paul goes to here in this moment, that it's Isaiah that he's quoting from, because Isaiah was a prophet who lived this reality. He didn't just write about it. It was the definition of his experience. If you look at Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter six, it's very interesting. We go to this passage and and we quote it often. It's the Lord, here am I, send me. You know, Isaiah's commissioning. And oftentimes you don't keep reading after that to see the nature of the ministry that Isaiah was called to. If you read that entire chapter, you see that Isaiah as a prophet had one of the most depressing calls imaginable because he was a man who was called to proclaim a word and was told by God in advance, they will not hear. They will not listen. Essentially, you have been called to failure and futility. That was the difficulty of Isaiah's call. So the question is, what can you learn from that? And what can you learn from a life like that? What did Isaiah learn from a calling like that? Because honestly, it's not the calling any of us want. All of us would, would like to be called. Yeah, I would like to be called to proclaim the word and everyone I talk to about that word believes and calls upon the name of the Lord. And I'm sure you feel the same. If you knew for certain that everybody you mentioned Jesus to will accept Christ and worship him, that would make it really easy to talk about Jesus. But what is the lesson to learn from a prophet whose experience was just the opposite and who knew from the beginning 
that that was the path he'd been called to travel. I think the lesson you learn is the one that Isaiah teaches in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, his discouragement and his frustration taught him not only faithfulness, but also awe, awe for the mystery of God and his ways. Here's what I want you to take away from this. As much as I'd like you to remember the importance of preaching, the necessity of public profession of being joined to the church, and I do want you to remember those things, the greatest lesson in Romans 10 is one that Paul only hints at. And it's the lesson that you find in Isaiah. The lesson, I think, that, that draws Paul to quote from Isaiah so heavily here. And it has to do with that awe, that wonder. When things don't work the way they're supposed to, don't despair. Don't throw your hands up and say, why? What's going on? I thought it worked this way and it doesn't. I thought God was going to do this and he hasn't. Don't despair. It's not an obstacle. It's an invitation. When things don't work the way that you expected, when it turns out God's plan is more complicated than you anticipated, than you thought it was going to be, that is an invitation to you from God, an invitation to trust him more. You didn't have it all figured out. You didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if your obedience would lead to success or failure. God calls you to trust in him more. And sometimes the way that he does it is by showing us how much more complex and mysterious his ways are than ours. He calls us to rely on him more. In other words, These experiences are designed by God not only to teach us wisdom, but to teach us wonder. And I think wonder might almost be the most important component. A lot of times we look back on childhood as a time of wonder. And the the sad thing about becoming an adult is that you lose that sense of wonder. Your sense of what is possible is lost. I think that's true for us as well who mature in faith. When we come to faith at first, there's an excitement. There's a a sense of, of the possibilities. Anything is possible. Over time, you come to rely on that less and less and, and hedge your bets a little bit. God can do anything he wants to do, but probably not that, right? Sometimes, The way that God works is designed to call us to restore that sense of wonder and who God is, to restore the sense of possibility in what God might do and to lead you to cherish not only the things he spelled out for you, but also to trust him in the things that he hasn't and to rely upon him when the path that you're traveling turns out to be very different than you thought it would be. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.